24. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. It's good to see everybody here. Uh, we're, f we're continuing the same handout as last week, so we'll be starting on page, page 24. We'll be starting in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, top of page 24. Is there enough, enough notes for everyone? Everyone got them? So last week you got a double packet, so you should, you should have them from last week. All right, let's, uh, let's get started. With a, we'll start with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for what he's done for us, what he someday will do for the, this whole world. Uh, as we think about him tonight, his words, I just pray that he'd be honored, especially as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, what he asks us to do. I pray that it would be convicting and challenging and at the same time encouraging. And we just uh, ask that you help our minds to stay clear and focused and uh, use this time well. And we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, this has never actually happened to me, but I've had a f couple friends tell me that they've showed up to preach at a church or teach at a church, and they've had the folks open the Bible. Yeah, as in, we got up to the pulpit, and my friend said, I'm thinking especially of a friend who was preaching, and he said, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And he actually had a man from the church come up and, and stop him and tell him, we don't, we don't preach from that passage here in this church. Um, I've heard it like from a couple different people that that actually happens. The reason for that is because it does, in some people's mind, cause a tension. It, what Jesus tells us to do in this sermon is very difficult. And so one of the ways the tension has been relieved by some people is just to say, well, it doesn't apply to us. It applies either to people who used to live or it applies to people who will live in the future. It doesn't apply to us today. And I just don't find that argument very convincing. If you remember back at the very beginning of our lesson, we said Matthew's writing around the year 60, give or take. Uh, he's going on 30 years since Jesus died, rose, and went back to heaven. And so he seems to be writing things from Jesus' life that he wants people then to know and people today to know. He's not just talking to people who are alive when Jesus was alive here on earth. He's not just talking to future people. He's talking to all of us. Also, it'd be very strange because as we're going to see, this uh, sermon. This is the first of those five sermons that I said form the backbone of Matthew's gospel. So he's carefully arranged the stories that he knows about Jesus and all the teaching that he heard Jesus say. And from those stories and that teaching, he's crafted it into a, an account that's around five main sermons. And this is the first one. 
so that when you get to the end of the gospel, chapter 28 in the Great Commission, when Matthew has Jesus say, he records for us that we're supposed to go out into this world and make disciples, we're supposed to baptize them in what? Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It seems like at the forefront of that teaching would have to be the teaching in the gospel itself. It would be really weird if the gospel ended with, you need to go out into the world and make disciples and teach them what Jesus said, but not this one sermon, right? That would seem very odd. And so I think the sermon does apply to us, but we are going to have to think carefully about what it says. It does pose some challenges. All right, so I just wanted to, before we go into the notes, show you up here on this slide, just the importance that the sermon had for the, the first Christians, the early church. So the early church's love of the sermon is demonstrated by the allusions to it that appear in the books of Romans, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, James, and 1st Peter. So that would represent Paul's writings, right? James, the, the brother of our Lord, and, and uh, Peter, Peter the Apostle. So all three of those men in their writing, I think you can make a strong case that they know about the Sermon on the Mount. It, it's something in their, in their thinking, okay? And they make little references to it in their letters. But also even after the New Testament. So between the close of the New Testament, which happened around the year 95, and the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, so roughly like the first 200 years of the early church after the New Testament, the early Christian writings that we have they quote from these three chapters more frequently and more extensively than any other portion of the Bible. So obviously we don't have everything that was written by Christians during that time, but we have some of the best of what they wrote because it was preserved and copied. And when we look at those early writings, there's no portion of the scriptures that's quoted more often or more extensively than the Sermon on the Mount in, in, uh, in Matthew 5 through 7. Just one demonstration of the importance that they placed on it. And I think sometimes maybe the importance has kind of been lost on us, okay? Maybe not in here in your church, maybe not in my church, but if we talk broadly in, in Christian circles, I think maybe the Sermon on the Mount, the importance has, has waned a little bit, okay? So let's tackle these notes. So... Uh, that first point there at the top of page 24, Jesus delivered this sermon on a mountain to his disciples. That's what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. A mountain, and he goes up on a mountain, and he is speaking to his disciples. Now Luke, he records a similar sermon in his gospel, chapter 6, and he says there that Jesus is giving a sermon on a level plane, or a level place. And that word translated level, it could be used to describe a plateau or the top of a hillside. Okay, So you could go up on a hill or mountain and you could find a, a flat area. And that could be what Luke's talking about. In that case, Luke and Matthew could be talking about the same place, the same occasion. Um, Luke seems to be referring to the same teaching. It says both sermons begin with Beatitudes, so you can compare Matthew 5 with Luke 6.20. Both are presented by the writers as having been given on a single occasion. So if you read Matthew 7.28, 
Luke 7, 1, they both seem to say that Jesus is giving this huge block of teaching on one occasion. Actually, if you read it to yourself, you realize it goes pretty quickly. This isn't your normal Sunday sermon, you know, 30, mi 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. You can read it in just a couple minutes. So it's probably a condensed version of his sermon. It's not everything that he said. But both Gospels seem to say that at least on one occasion he gave this whole thing. Um, but I say there, however, Jesus, as an itinerant preacher, he likely gave similar sermons often. So I, I don't find that problematic at all, that Jesus is traveling from village to village. He's regularly preaching. Remember we saw in chapter 4, it says he's preaching the good news about the kingdom. This is the content of his, his message. He's not a politician. I don't want to cheapen him in that way, right? Because we're all tired of the political season. But politic, you know, politicians have their stump speeches. They go from place to place, and they keep giving the same speech over and over again. It, it would be similar, okay? You can make an analogy with what Jesus is doing. This is a sermon that I think he preached regularly. And I think one of the evidences we have of that is, if you go to Luke's Gospel, he actually takes pieces of the Sermon on the Mount, and he places it in different places. So it's arranged sporadically throughout his whole gospel. And I think he can do that because he knows that Jesus gave the sermon multiple times. Okay? Uh, I think there at the bottom, as we go through the sermon, the bottom of that long first paragraph, it's important to remember that not everyone who's called a disciple was a true disciple. In other words, not everyone who hears called a disciple is truly born again. John's gospel makes this really clear, right? There are people who followed Jesus because he was doing miracles. They liked the fact that he was feeding them. He liked the fact, they liked the fact that he was healing. But then every once in a while, he would say something very difficult that they didn't like, and he would actually drive them away by his words, right? I think the same type of thing is happening here with the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's gathering people who claim to be repenting, they say, yes, we believe this message. We want to turn from our sins. We want to enter this kingdom. And Jesus is essentially saying, well, then welcome. And this is the kind of life now that I'm calling you to. If you're truly repentant, if you're truly born again, this is what it'll actually look like in your life. Okay? Uh, point two there. Um, well, let me, let's just go through these slides. Make sure I covered everything. So... Yeah, who's the audience? It includes Jesus' disciples, but it also, I think, includes those who are not born again. Um, let me just go back and read the last paragraph of chapter 4, just so we kind of see what I'm talking about here. So I'll go back to chapter 4, verse 23. I want you to see how large the crowd is. Uh, I want you to see the motivation behind why the crowd is gathering. It's also important to notice that the crowd is mixed. There's Jews and Gentiles. So it says, Jesus, I'm reading from verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. I mean, remember, these people don't have Netflix at home. I mean, this is a really big deal. This is the kind of thing that you'd want to go out and see if it was taking place. Either you wanted to be healed or it was just entertaining, right? So this would have gathered a huge crowd. And they're not just Jewish people. It says they're from all of Syria. So remember that map I had up last time? This would be all the way to the north, those areas that were still under Gentile control. 
And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, so that's another Gentile region, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. All right. Another thing I, I mentioned there on that slide is that the sermon ends with, with an invitation. Like a good sermon, just like a sermon you would hear here at your church, the preacher wants you to do something as a response. Maybe not an altar call, but you there, sitting there, listening to the sermon, you need to do something based on what you've just heard. And Jesus is no different. Remember, he's going to do this with his, his two gates, his two trees, and then the famous two builders, right? The foolish man who builds his house on the sand, the wise man who builds his house on the rock. I always want to do the hand motions because I learned that song when I was little. I won't sing it for you because I'm tone deaf, but some of us know that song, right? We learned it when we were kids. We might have forgotten that that song is based on a story, and that story is the conclusion. It's the, it's the call. It's the invitation at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus wouldn't have to do that if he thought everyone out there was truly born again, right? The reason he has to do that, because he knows there's still people in this crowd that's forming who are building their lives on sand. They like him. They like what he's doing. It's very interesting, and it helps their immediate needs, right? Their physical needs, but they're not truly repentant. They're not truly born again, and they need to listen to him carefully, accept who he is, and build their lives on a rock, okay? Um, as Matthew has done frequently, going down to point two, as he introduces Jesus here in the sermon, he continues, as he did in the earlier chapters, to connect Jesus, the one who had come to deliver Israel, with Moses, God's original instrument of Israel's deliverance. In fact, the sermon seems to be something of a climax to the Moses motif that's preceded it. And several factors point in this direction. So, remember back in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 18, God said through Moses that someday there would be another prophet like Moses. And when he spoke, because God would put words in his mouth, you were supposed to listen to him. And we're now supposed to identify Jesus with that one. Because when we got to the end of Deuteronomy, there's a little piece that Moses didn't write himself because he dies. Remember, he goes up on the mountain and dies. And then there must have been an editor, maybe somebody like an Ezra or somebody like that came along later. And they wrote the last little bit of Deuteronomy. They said, there's, you know, there's no one like Moses that's ever arisen who's done the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. Until now, right? Because now there has been somebody like Moses. That's, that's been Matthew's point to prove that Jesus is the one who can do signs and wonders like Moses. And Jesus does have God's words in his mouth. And so when Jesus speaks, we should listen to him. We should obey. We should build our lives like a man building a house on the rock, okay? Several different things here happen at the very beginning. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, this is a cumulative case. You know, a cumulative case, like a lawyer, you know, he's building a case by pieces. Each one of these by itself isn't very strong, but all together, I think they make a very strong case that Matthew wants you to connect 
Jesus with Moses. So first of all, it says Jesus went up on the mountain. So they don't have to always put the article the. He could have just said a mountain or even a hill. You notice in that picture I just showed you of Galilee, those are really hills. It's kind of a stretch to call them mountains. So I think this is a way of connecting him with Moses. In the NASB, it says in verse 2, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. So our NIV, as it, as it often does, it makes it a little bit clearer and smoother in English, which we all appreciate, I like, but sometimes it also obscures. So in the NIV, it just says he began to teach them. But a more word-for-word uh, -word translation would be he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. And so point B there on the notes, I give you some Old Testament passages where that same Semitic expression appears. You know, it's kind of redundant. If someone's talking, they have their mouth open. You don't have to say he opened his mouth and he talked, right? But it was a, it was a Jewish way. It was a Semitic way of expressing something that was really important. So it happens in Job. It happens in the Psalms. It happens in the book of Daniel. It's basically a way of saying, hey, listen up. What this guy's about ready to tell you is very important. It's another way, I think, of connecting him with revelation. Of course, when he opens up his mouth and speaks, it's not just that God has put words in his mouth. It's even more than that, isn't it? Because by this time in Matthew's gospel, we know that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Remember, he's the one that John was preparing the way for when the Bible said, in the Old Testament, said that God would come and that the prophet would prepare the way for the Lord. This is the Lord himself speaking. Um, in just a second here, um, I'll show you that he points towards Israel's needs for another deliverer like Moses. So if we read the Beatitudes carefully, and sometimes our Bibles help us out here because we'll have little cross-references to Old Testament passages. Um, I put a few of them up here on the screen. We can see that these promises that are made in the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 11, many of them clearly go back and connect to Old Testament prophecies about the restoration of Israel. A couple of things I wanted to show you here on this slide. So it's not not just Christmas colors, right? I had a method for my madness here, okay? So the first thing I wanted you to notice in red there is that there's a bookend. So one of the things that biblical authors will do is they'll, they'll section off a chunk. They'll let you know, hey, this is a paragraph that you should read together. And the way they do that is they'll repeat a phrase at the beginning and the end. And because you've seen the repeated phrase, it lets you know that it's a unit, and that the whole thing holds together. I think the great promise here is that these people that Jesus is talking about, they belong to the kingdom of heaven. They're citizens of the kingdom. Someday when Jesus' kingdom is established here on earth, they will enter it. Everything in between kind of unpacks that and develops it. Well, what's so great about the kingdom? Why should we look forward to that? Well, it's because in the kingdom you'll be comforted. In the kingdom you'll inherit a new home. In the kingdom, you'll be filled with righteousness. In the kingdom, you'll receive mercy. You see how that works? Everything in the middle is explaining to you why this is so great. Uh, usually, these are translated the other way around. So we're used to seeing not the poor in spirit are the blessed ones. What are we used to seeing? Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
And that's more faithful to the word order. So Matthew, when he's writing, he puts the word that's translated blessed, he puts it first because he wants to emphasize it. But I think it does something in English that's a little confusing to us because we forget that the word blessed is actually an adjective. The actual subject of the sentence is the poor, the ones who mourn, the meek, the ones who hunger. Usually we put subjects first and then we put the adjectives after. The reason why I think it's helpful, well, one, sometimes when we see something translated a new way, it's kind of jarring for us and it wakes us up a little bit and helps us to focus on it. But also, I think sometimes we misunderstand what Jesus is saying and we think he's saying, if you do these things, you'll get blessed. So we could read that, if you are poor in spirit, you'll get blessed. Or if you mourn, you'll get blessed. And it becomes kind of a mechanical tit-for-tat type thing. Does that make sense? But that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is actually saying is, you are the blessed ones. You are really blessed, even though you don't look like you are. You are the blessed people, and the evidence... The evidence comes in the green. The evidence that Jesus keeps pointing to is, well, even though you're poor in spirit and everyone would think you're not blessed, you're cursed, you actually are the blessed ones because you'll receive the kingdom of heaven. You are actually the blessed ones because you will be comforted. You are the blessed ones because you will inherit the land and so forth. And going through all those multiple times, you can find Old Testament passages that connect those promises. This is another way that the original hearers of the Sermon on the Mount would have thought to themselves, hey, he's actually saying that all those promises in the Old Testament are going to be ours. You know, we might look like a motley bunch, right? We might be poor. We might be persecuted. In our day, we might be said to be unscientific or on the wrong side of history, or not politically correct, or backwards. And, you know, we've all heard those kind of slurs, but we've had our Lord look at us and say, no, you actually are on the blessed side. And we'll, we'll go through this a little bit more next week and talk about this, but it's not that you did something to get in the group, it's that God put you in that group by His grace, and now He's pointing to evidences in your life, and He's comforting you with the promises that you someday will receive. And of course, this all comes to a climax there in verse 11. So the, the, the chain kind of breaks. So not only do the bookends tell you that that's a paragraph, but he, now he switches to the second person. You know, before he was talking about the third person. He's talking about the group in general, but now he makes it very personal. It's you. And remember, he's talking to people like you and I that live in this in-between time. This in-between time between Jesus' two comings where we are going to be persecuted and we are going to be hated for Jesus' sake. And he says, you are the blessed ones when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great, which I think is just another way of saying yours is the kingdom of heaven. So it's not like go to heaven and then there's going to be a reward and you get to hang out in heaven with your reward. The idea more is there's a reward in heaven that's coming to earth. <laughs> the kingdom that is kept safe for you, the king who is waiting on his throne for you, will someday come to this world so that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. All right? And then one last thing here to finish out that page, a detail that Matthew uses to connect Jesus with Moses is that Matthew ends the sermon with a phrase that reminds his readers of Moses. So all of these sermons in Matthew, remember, end with the same repeated phrase, when Jesus had finished. Remember we saw this slide on the very first night? When Jesus had finished. It happens five times, and it marks off the end of each one of these sermons. And when Matthew chose to use that phrasing, he was, I think, again, drawing from the Old Testament. There's at least three places where at the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses is speaking or writing, he uses a very similar expression. After Moses finished writing a book, and Moses recited the words of the song from beginning to end, and then especially when Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel. All right? That's the, that's the first page. Any, any questions there? Yeah, go ahead. It does have a different slant to it because I think, and, we'll, and we're going to, we kind of introduced it tonight. We'll come back to it next week and look at it a little fuller. Because I think what's happening is that Jesus, obviously he knows that salvation is by grace and it's always accompanied by regeneration, the new birth of the Spirit. So we receive two great gifts when we're converted. One, we're justified. We're forgiven of all sins that we have committed or ever will commit. And Jesus' perfect record is given to us. So that's justification. But the other truth is regeneration. We're not just forgiven, but we're, we're made new. We're not yet what we will be. So there's, there's a progressive aspect to it. We call it our sanctification. But we certainly aren't who we used to be. Paul says that the person that we were in Adam died with Christ on the cross. I mean, how could you say any stronger that that person is dead, right? So our Catholic friends, they tend to blur those two. They say that we're justified because we're regenerated or because we're sanctified. So because we receive the Spirit at our baptism and because of the work of the church, we're progressively becoming more holy, and it's on that basis that we're forgiven. That's, that's their error. The Reformers, I think, following Scripture, were very careful that those are two things that happen together that you always receive, but we shouldn't mix them. We're justified on Jesus' account. It's His perfect record that saves us, and we're also being made new. Well, what if somebody shows up and says, well, I am justified. <laughs> I am forgiven, right? I am one of these repenters, you know, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who showed up for Jesus or for John's baptism. Well, what we can do sometimes is we can look at the, the evidences of their life. If they don't show any signs of regeneration, then they don't have justification because those two always do come together as a package. They're twin graces, is what the Reformers would refer to them as. So I think here Jesus is talking about this category over here. He's saying, hey, if you're actually one of the people who will enter my kingdom, this is what it'll look like. You will be mourning over your sin. You will be humble in your spirit. You will hunger for righteousness. 
both in yourself and in the rest of the world. I mean, that's a, that's a strong metaphor, isn't it? Do you hunger for righteousness? When you look around at the news and what's happening in this world, do you want it to be right? And then when you look at your own life, and do you wish you were right? Do you wish you were free from sin? And Jesus is saying that desire, that thing that you have inside of you, that hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you didn't get that naturally. That was part of the new birth. And so I hope I'm making sense, but he's, he's addressing this category over here, what we call regeneration or sanctification. And he's doing it by pointing to fruit. And so he's picking right up where John left off. Remember when John said, hey, if you want this baptism, you need to produce the fruit that matches repentance. But we're, we're going to tackle that from a different angle next week because it, it's a big topic. Yep. So going back about four or five screens, like okay. the, the green and the red. Yeah, yeah. Christmas colors, yeah. Well, okay, the thing yeah. is, is, is those, those are less an exhortation and more of evidences, right? It's more of an encouragement. Yeah, so maybe, maybe I shouldn't have set up the... I'm, I'm like teasing you and I'm telling you to wait for next week. But I think like one way you could translate the blessed ones, it's almost like a congratulations. It's almost like, <laughs> hurrah, you, you, you're one of them. You are a part of the blessed group. You don't look like it and the world hates you. The world would say you're cursed and despised. But Jesus, as your Lord, is looking at you and saying, I know the true story. That there's more than meets the eye here, that you're actually part of the blessed group. And then you would say, well, what makes me part of the blessed group? And Jesus is saying, you don't know what's happening, and you don't know what you have in store for you. Right? You don't have it now, but you will have it then. And then that's where I think everything to the right starts unpacking what is in store for those who have been blessed by God. Yes? Do you think that part of, part of the problem with with confusing, that almost getting it reversed because we know that faith comes first. The regeneration is the faith that God gives us. It's nothing of ourselves. Right. And so the desire to go back and try to find something in it that says that we're responsible for the blessing, you know, that, that you know, it's not a reward for our obedience. Mm -hmm. Our obedience comes as a result of our gratitude for what he's done for us. So it's like there's still that sinful pride in us that wants to believe that we did something or we can do something mm -hmm. to earn God's favor. Yeah, I and couldn't. The reality is that we can't. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. I think that's exactly what's happening. There's something inside of us that wants the credit, but the way God has set up this universe is that in the end, his son receives all the credit, right? Adam won't be the hero of the story. We won't be the hero of the story. It will be Jesus. And uh, that's why the story has been written the way it was, so that he can be the hero. All right, let's go a little bit further. We talked about the transition statements. Let's go to the top of page 25. What's this sermon about, okay? So like any good sermon, it's a, it's a, it has a topic. So you, know, you would go home and you would talk about you know, a sermon that Pastor Ken preached on Sunday. You'd say, well, what did he preach about? You know, maybe he preached about faith. Maybe he preached about the cross. Maybe he preached about the resurrection. That would be the topic. It's like a big category. Uh, and usually you figure out the topic because it's the thing that keeps getting repeated. 
The, the speaker keeps talking about it. Well, in this sermon, definitely the kingdom of heaven is the topic. So not only does it occur eight times in the sermon, and I give you the references there at the top, but also it occurs in critical places. And again, I'll, I'll appeal to this bookend idea. I'll keep coming back to this because I think it's important. Not only does he use the kingdom of heaven like as little bookends around the beatitude, but next week when we kind of look at the overview of the whole content of the sermon, you can see that the kingdom of heaven, specifically how do we enter the kingdom of heaven, is going to form bookends around the content. So I have a, a large quote there from Carson's very helpful commentary in Matthew, and he talks about how it strategically is placed throughout the sermon. The sermon. But it's not enough just to say, okay, well, that's what the sermon's about. We also want to know, well, what did he say about that topic? That's a more specific question. So the topic is the kingdom of heaven, but what's the theme? What's the big idea? What is he trying to say? Well, this is where Christians and uh, even uh, professing or non-Christians have come up with several different options, okay? So this is the part, if you don't like history, just, just bear with me. I'll try to go quick, okay? I like history, but not everybody does. I realize that. You've got these points there um, in your outline. Different approaches to the Sermon on the Mount. So the first one here would be a Lutheran approach. It gets that name because it's associated with Martin Luther. These people would say, well, the purpose of the sermon is to drive you to Christ. So when you read the sermon and it gives you these high demands, it's intended to help you to realize what a great sinner you are and how you never perfectly match up. And so then you would look to, to Christ for grace. Okay? I think it has an element of truth, but I think it's ironic because it's called the Lutheran approach, but actually Martin Luther himself, he only saw that as one piece of the sermon. So he did talk about the sermon in that way, but Luther also said this. He says, Christ is saying nothing in the sermon about how we become Christians. So I think this would, this would answer the question that we were talking about a little bit earlier. So Luther says this sermon isn't about becoming Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian and in a state of grace. All right. So I think Luther captured this well. So I think even Luther himself didn't quite follow the Lutheran approach, which that's ironic, right? Uh, number two, the, there's a kind of a classical liberal approach. So if any of you grew up in like a mainline denomination church, you might be familiar with this, or you might have friends that kind of take this approach. In many of our mainline or liberal denominations, they would regularly preach homilies or lessons from the Sermon on the Mount. But it's pretty much just follow Jesus' example, you know, kind of the what would Jesus do approach that we talked about with Shelton. And by following his example, we will bring in his kingdom on earth. So there's no view of the supernatural. There's nothing that comes from heaven to earth. There's no regeneration. It's just you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be a better person and make a better world. Okay? It's a, it's a non-believing approach. The third one is also, I think this one goes by lots of different names. Existentialism is kind of a big word. But how many of you met a person that just says, I'm a spiritual person, right? I'm not a Christian. I don't believe what you believe, but I'm very spiritual, or I have faith, right? That's very common in our day. Um, it's all about just their personal experience, what they get out of the Bible, 
or what they get out of any book that they read. And their, their religion, their worldview is shaped by their own existential experience. And so the Sermon on the Mount is just kind of a roadmap to that experience. Again, this would be an unbelieving approach. But again, a little closer to home, so this would be an Anabaptist or a Mennonite approach. Uh, they think that the sermon makes ethical demands of all Christians. So this is something that they believe Jesus said. Jesus wants us to follow it, and they, they tend to take it very literally to the, to the point where, you know, where he says to, to turn the other cheek in the sermon. They would say, well, then that means that we, we have to be pacifists. We can't serve in the military. Uh, you know, we can't use weapons in self-defense. The problem with that, that view is that you know, in Luke's gospel, you get to the Last Supper, and what does Jesus tell his disciples that they're supposed to do because they're going to go out into a dangerous world without him? He says you might want to go out and get a sword, right? He actually tells them to arm themselves because he will no longer be with them to protect them. They should actually have some kind of personal protection. So it's really hard to jive those two statements, that we're supposed to be pacifists, we're never supposed to use weapons, but then Jesus himself tells us to go out and buy a sword, okay? Um, another approach here, uh, so the, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, think this applies to all Christians at all times, and they tend to take it very literally. The next two approaches, I think I have these in a little different order on your handout, so I apologize, but I tried to group these by a limited time. So there's two views that say it's only for a specific group of Christians. All right, you see how that's different than the Anabaptist view? The first one, this would be associated with that guy, uh, Schweitzer, that we talked about last week. Remember, Schweitzer thought that Jesus was wrong. Jesus thought the kingdom was coming, and then he found out it wasn't. And so Schweitzer popularized the idea that, well, the Sermon on the Mount only applies to that little slice of Jesus' life right before the kingdom was supposed to arrive. So that's why he could say, you know, if somebody asks you to you know, carry something for a mile, go with them two miles. If someone wants, you know, wants to uh, borrow money from you, give them whatever they ask. Schweitzer says, well, of course, that's, that's how you would live if the end of the age was coming like tomorrow, okay? But now that we know it's not, we don't have to follow it, okay? That's a, it's a wrong approach, but I think it still has influenced some people's thinking because we actually have some dispensationalists who think that the sermon is a constitution for life in the millennial kingdom. So ironically, they have a position that's similar to Schweitzer. Schweitzer said it's only while Jesus was preaching the kingdom these are believers, fellow Christians, who say, well, it's only for the future. It's only for the millennium. When we get to the millennium, we can, we can live by the Sermon on the Mount, but we can't do it now. But as Carson says in, in his commentary, it's kind of strange that Jesus has to talk about slapping in the millennial kingdom, right? Like, who are these people that walk up and hit you in Jesus' kingdom, right? But I think even more devastating to this view is if that's true, if this is a constitution for the kingdom and it only applies to the future, why does Jesus say that about the persecution in that slide that I just put up a little bit, a little bit ago? Why did he have to talk about people hating us and, and saying evil against us and persecuting us? That sounds a little bit more like this age, right? And not the age to come. So again, I think this, this view has some problems. Um, another contemporary evangelical approach, though I think these are getting a little closer to the truth, 
is that the sermon should be viewed as a presentation of the life that results from genuine conversion. Or two, sometimes you'll hear people say the sermon describes life in the inaugurated form of Christ's coming kingdom. So I'll show you some quotes here. So this one here was from the Schofield Reference Bible. I just wanted to just kind of want to back up my statement when I say some dispensationalists view it as a constitution for life in the kingdom. I actually took that from the Schofield Reference Bible. So that Bible was very popular at the beginning of the last century, influenced lots of churches like us. I think it's because of that view that my friend had that experience where he got up to preach the Sermon on the Mount and the pastor told him he had to stop, okay? Because he was taking this view to an extreme and saying that the sermon didn't apply. But let me show you what I think are some, some good approaches. So I've, I've, I've learned a lot from reading from others. So I hope you'll indulge me for a second and let me just put up a few quotes here. These are basically ranked from the one I like the best is third. That's how teachers always do it, right? But they're all good, okay? They all have a little bit of, of, uh, of truth to them, I think. So this is from Blomberg. He says, Inaugurated eschatology recognizes an already not yet tension in which the sermon's ethic remains the ideal or goal for all Christians in every age, but which will never be fully realized until the consummation of the kingdom of Christ's return. I think I have these for you on page 26, don't I? The top of page 26. So what I like about Blomberg, I'm not, I got to be honest, I'm not a big fan of talking about inaugurated eschatology because I think it's kind of fuzzy. People use that term because they want to say that some aspect of the kingdom is already here. I think we can be a little bit more concrete. We can say the king is already here and we can say the citizens are already here, you and I, the citizens. So we can be more specific, but I'm not going to quibble too much over that. What I actually like here is that he emphasizes that this is for Christians in every age. I think that's true. And also that it never will be fully realized. So I say there in the notes a little bit further that I think Jesus speaks to us like a father would speak to his children. He sets the bar up here. This is what's expected of us. But he's also willing to forgive and show mercy when we fall short. That's what we do with our kids. You know, we don't say to our kids, hey, you know, I have a daughter and a son, right? My daughter's a little bit older than my son. I didn't say to my daughter, you know, you can hit your brother three times a day. You know, that's the limit. You know, no, I said, you can't hit your brother at all. And then if she did hit her brother, there could be consequences. But I also, as her father, could forgive her, right? I could forgive when she failed. But I never lowered the bar. The bar was always, you should not, you shall not hit your brother. You shall not lie. You shall not, you know, we have these, these standards, right? God speaks to us the same way. I think sometimes when we read the Sermon on the Mount, the standard seems incredibly high, but it is something that we will, at the consummation of the kingdom, when Jesus returns, we will fully keep. In the meantime, we have to keep trusting in Jesus' righteousness, right? The fact that Jesus' righteousness is applied to our account can give us great confidence and assurance. These other two quotes, they emphasize the fact that it's for the citizens. So that's what I like about here. So Osborne says, primarily it's the new laws for the kingdom age intended as an ethical model to be followed by the new citizens of the kingdom community. It establishes the ethical standards of righteousness for Jesus' followers. And then my favorite from Keener, 
These teachings do not represent an ethical outline for humanity or nation states. So what he's saying there is, hey, this isn't a model for recreating our government. This isn't something that you should try to impose on unbelievers. They'll never be able to follow it. This is something specifically directed towards the born-again people, the people who are citizens of the future kingdom. All right? So putting that all together, how should we approach the sermon? I think we need to recognize that it's given to a mixed group of both believers and non-believers. We already talked about this. The sermon's not laying out a works-based salvation that would contradict other scriptures. It cannot be separated from Jesus' call to repentant faith, and it ends with a call to follow Christ, the foolish man and the wise man. Furthermore, if you go to Luke 11.13 later, if you compare Luke 11.13 with Matthew 7.11, so Matthew 7.11, it says that the Father gives good gifts, and it just kind of leaves it vague. You're not really sure what the gift is. Luke clarifies it. He says specifically that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to whoever asks. So I think the Spirit is implied in Matthew, even though he's not explicitly named. So again, I think we're talking about regeneration here. The sermon was originally spoken to people who were being offered the kingdom, but the sermon is not a constitution for the kingdom. All right, so look at verses 38 and 39 real quick. Um, This is where it talks about, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So here they're probably talking about the Roman practice of their soldiers or their auxiliary troops who worked for them could basically ask the common person to do whatever they wanted them to do. Remember this happens at Jesus' crucifixion where Simon is told he has to carry the cross. And uh, Jesus is saying, hey, you as my followers, you're going to live in this kind of broken, evil world where evil people are going to ask you to do hard things, okay? And you should have a disposition that would go above and beyond what they ask of you. It doesn't seem to me like any of this sounds like the constitution of the future millennial kingdom. It sounds to me more like we're talking about the age that you and I live in now. It's about what would it look like if we were truly those who were entering the kingdom, okay? So here's the, the main point. Um, so we're on the page, uh, let's see where I have this, page 27. I've skipped ahead to point E. Should do a little drum roll at this point, right? This is, this is what we were driving at. I think this is the point. This is how I've tried to capture it. Uh, Jesus is saying, I think, in my opinion, my followers who will enter my kingdom must demonstrate their repentance by living differently than the world around them. And I think the key verse, so if you wanted a key verse of the sermon, I think the key verse is verse 20. Verse 20 of chapter 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. As I say there in that paragraph and on the slide, uh, the shock of that statement it maybe is lost on us because you and I have never met a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Uh, but they had, right? And they thought they were the good guys. Um, 
Sadducees, maybe not always. They were a little bit elitist down in Jerusalem. They worked in the temple. But lots of Pharisees in Galilee. Pharisees were required to have some kind of skill or a trade. So they weren't just you know, sitting in a library all day reading books. They were out and about. They were common people, so to speak, although probably a little bit on the wealthy side. But they were devout. They, they kept the law. They were the type of person, if you had a question about the scriptures, you would have gone and asked them because they would have seemed like they got it, right? They were very sharp. And, fair, and Jesus is saying, you have to have a righteousness. Again, I'm thinking of like regeneration over here. You have to have a righteousness that's greater than those guys. And if you don't have that righteousness, you won't enter into my kingdom. That would have been a very, very shocking statement. That's, that's talking about something that's supernatural. That's something that only the Spirit can produce in a person. And uh, he's basically saying, you're going to have to live very differently and then he's going to go on, we'll pick this up next time, he's going to compare that to you know, the salt of the earth, the light on the hill, and then he's going to do these contrasting statements. You've heard that this was said by the ancients and by, in the Old Testament, but now I'm, I'm saying to you. Okay. Um, in the middle of that paragraph, I have this quote here from John Stott. So John Stott, I don't do a lot of footnotes, but footnote 13 there, I've got his little book, on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't agree with everything that he says in that book, but if you're looking for a little short commentary just on the sermon, he has a lot of helpful stuff. Um, of course, he's British too, so that helps. You can't hear his accent, but sometimes it comes out a little bit in what he's saying. But he says, insofar as the church is conformed to the world, so to the degree, I could say, to the degree that the church looks just like the world, and the two communities appear to the onlooker to be merely two versions of the same thing, the church is contradicting its true identity. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different from anyone else. Is that so true? That's the worst thing that someone outside our church could ever say to us. <laughs> you guys are just like everybody else, right? Because we really are supposed to be different. And I know, I'll be the first to admit, that cuts against the grain, right? Because we all like to fit in. Nobody wants to be the different person, right? That goes against our wiring. But this sermon is saying, no, you, you really have to be different. And you can be. That's the good news. You can be because you've been regenerated. You've been born again. And you're not yet what you will be. You're still a, an unfinished product. But you are making baby steps towards that final destination. And you have the spirit living inside of you, so you do need to live differently. Again, I'm, I'm really putting a lot of weight on the way Matthew set this up by showing us that both John and Jesus were calling the people to repent. Repentance is part of conversion. It always comes with justification and regeneration. Justification is legal. It happens in God's throne room. We can't see it. But regeneration is something that happens here and now. If you have this one, you do have this one. Because they always come together as a package. And remember, John would not baptize those Pharisees and Sadducees who came saying they repented because he's saying, hey, I'm not seeing any fruit in your life. You know, actually produce fruit that matches with uh, repentance. So, uh, one of my colleagues there at the seminary, Dr. Dawson, uh, in one of his uh, handouts, 
I think he captured this well. He says, in context, I believe that the Lord is primarily presenting a picture of those who will enter his kingdom. So not people who live in it now, but people who will enter it. The sermon is a picture of repenters. I think Dr. Dawson coined a word there, but we know what he means, right? It's a picture of repenters. It shows the evidence, the fruit of their repentance. All right? I think that's a good point to, to stop there, right, before D. I covered a lot, though, so I'll leave you, leave you a few more minutes for questions. Any, any questions or anything that I can clarify? When we come back next week, I want to hit the Beatitudes one more time. And then I want to talk a little bit about how do we interpret the sermon? You know, what do we do with those, those statements about you know, offering sacrifices in the temple, you know, soldiers asking us to go two miles or go one mile, we go two miles. You know, how do we interpret those statements in our day today when we don't have that stuff around us? All right. Any other questions though? Yes. I really struggle with those that you know ask you for something and you give it. I, I really struggle with that because if you drive around the city much, mm-hmm. you're gonna be hitting you're gonna be hit up with beggars. Just on every street corner, and you're going to be out of money yourself. I mean, I mean, I don't, yeah, want, yeah. I don't want to excuse myself for my stinginess, but isn't that enabling? What well, is? And is enabling not a not a sin? Well, you, so Scripture never contradicts itself, so we always have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And Paul said to the Thessalonians that if they weren't willing to work, they shouldn't eat. Remember that statement. So that still applies. So if we have a person who's not willing to work and they're just trying to, to mooch off those who do, I think Paul would say that that's wrong for us to help them, right? Um, so then we'd have to reconcile. So that, that would be my first response is we compare Scripture to Scripture. The other thing, we'll talk about this a little bit more, is we have to allow Jesus some room for hyperbole that sometimes he says things hyperbolically, like, you know, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off, right? We all know that he's not actually talking about amputation, right? It's a figure of speech. Um, Maybe sometimes the problem is that we don't really focus on the, the humanness of Jesus, if I can put it that way. We don't think of him as a real person. We never think of him saying things with a smile, a twinkle in his eye. We never think of him laughing. We sometimes think of him as very wooden, just making pronouncements like he's, a, like he's just a mouthpiece. But he's a human, and he speaks to us who are fellow humans, and he does use hyperbole, he does use figure of speeches, he does use irony, he does make jokes. Um, so we have to factor all those into his statements. But we will try to try to wrestle through those. Um, but a, a kind of a preliminary statement too I'd add is that uh, all of these have to do with a, a heart disposition. So if we're thinking very mechanically like what do I have to do on the outside in order to, to follow this rule, then we've already lost <laughs> because that was never the intention. The intention is always a heart disposition. You know, like if I have a heart that wants to forgive or I have a heart that wants to go the extra mile, or I have a heart that turns the other cheek instead of throwing the punch. Uh, the heart is always what, what Jesus is after here, I think, in the sermon. Um, yes, ma'am. I think related to 
what Wes said. Um, it is it is difficult to discern when you see a person on the street. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to discern whether they legitimately are not able to work. I've seen people in wheelchairs, and I don't know if they're legitimately in a wheelchair, you know, or they're just using it as a prop. I I don't know, but I think sometimes the Holy Spirit does move you yeah. to help people in that way. It doesn't mean that they're all right, but it it there is that possibility that they are genuinely a person in need. We happen to have what they might need in that particular moment when their life crosses our path. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I understand what Wes is saying. Yeah. But, you know, you can't, you know, I'm a widow alone working to support myself. So, yeah, I have to be careful how much of what God is giving to me to take care of myself. Right. To, you know, dole out to people in the street. Sometimes you don't know, right? Sometimes it's very clear this person is just out to get me. And, you know, it becomes obvious if you offer them food and they don't want food or, or if they're very able-bodied. But what do you do in the, when you don't know? I mean, that's the harder question, right? And uh, So one of my pastors told me once that he, he had a certain amount of money that he just told himself, I'm, I'm willing to be had for this amount. <laughs> There's this, I'm willing to be had so many times a month for this amount of money. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm just going to err on the side of being generous. If, if I'm not sure, I'll give it to them, not expecting anything in return. But this is, this is what God's given me, and I, and I can wisely use this amount. Um, so I would say if you know for sure you're being scammed, you can't do it, right? Because then you would be violating what Paul said. If you're not sure, then we could, we could err on the side of being generous, right? Yeah. When a person comes up to you and says, you know, can you give me five dollars for gas? Yeah. And you offer to actually have him pull up to the pump and you pay for his gas. Yeah. And he says, well, no, no, I'm yeah. not. Then you know. Yeah. That we've, we've, <laughs> yeah. That fine line that we can't always discern. It's tough, yeah. And that's just one of the tough things Paul, Jesus says, right? There's, there's several of them, but there are some very, very tough ones here. All right, well, I really appreciate the interaction, the questions. Um, as you can tell, I'm not always going to go verse by verse through these passages. So to get the most out of the class, be reading the Scripture on your own. And then if there's something you want to ask about, just feel free to ask uh, when we're together. All right? Uh, we'll see you next week, Lord willing.